Hey, everybody. Welcome today to National Cancer Prevention Workshop Environmental Panel. We're super excited to have each of you here. And we are going to start with uh, Vina Singla. And Vina, uh, could you share with the audience who you are, what you do, and let's talk about it. Thank you so much, Bill. I'm really excited to be here. I'm a scientist working with the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC for short. And NRDC is an international nonprofit that employs scientists, lawyers, and policy experts to advocate for science-based policies to protect human health and the environment. And we have a staff of about 700 in offices across the United States, including um, beautiful San Francisco, California, where I am, as well as in China and India. And uh, as I mentioned, I'm a scientist and I work at the science policy intersection on healthier communities. So I do research and analysis to bring the most current scientific principles and data to inform policies, to advance public health protections, especially thinking about the most impacted populations like people of color, low-income communities, workers, women, and children. I just want to say, too, before I move ahead with the question, that Eric Olson from NRDC really produced this panel today. And, um, you know, I know I speak for the board of directors of Lost Cancer, how proud we are to work with you on this today. And we're so impressed with your work and your, the world would be different without you. So we're really grateful. Um, Vina, can you tell us a little bit about um, the environment in our homes? How does this all affect our health? I mean, can you share a little bit with that? Sure, that's a that's a great question. So really broadly, I work on environmental health, and that's how the environment impacts our health. So when you think really simply about factors that impact our health, there's the genes that we're born with, there's what we can do as individuals, our behavior, and our environment. So that includes the air we breathe, the water we drink, and what's in our homes and neighborhoods. And that environment can have a really big and kind of unappreciated impact on our health. So for example, in the past few decades, uh, we see these rising trends of certain diseases in children, like certain cancers, um, asthma, and developmental disorders. And Studies find that um, environmental exposures like pollution and chemicals contribute significantly to increased risks of these kinds of diseases. Now, when I say environmental exposures, what I mean by that is chemicals and pollutants that get into our bodies when we eat, drink, and absorb them from the food that we eat, the water that we drink, products that we use, and the places where we live, learn, work, and play. So that environment um, encompasses the outdoors, certainly, like um, outdoor air that we breathe, but also inside. And in developed countries, uh, like the United States, people spend about 90% of their time indoors on average. So that's at home, the office, at school, um, the gym, transportation. So the indoor environment is also a big part of our environment. 
And unfortunately, there's a number of environmental exposures in the home that can pose health threats. For example, uh, things like mold and moisture, uh, pests, insects, rodents, um, and volatile organic chemicals, or VOCs, all of these kinds of environmental exposures in the home can cause and exacerbate asthma. There's also materials and chemicals used in our buildings to, to build our homes and construct them, like asbestos, formaldehyde, and per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PAFAS, which we'll hear um, a lot more about, I think, from uh, other panelists later. All of, all of these substances are linked to cancers. There's other chemicals um, used in buildings like in like lead paint and in leaded water pipes, um, flame retardant chemicals used in um, furniture and children's products, and pesticides used to control pests. These uh, kinds of chemicals are linked to developmental disorders, including cognitive learning and memory problems. So when we look at contaminants in the indoor environment in our homes, what we see often is higher levels of certain chemicals indoors compared to the outside. So some of these chemicals I mentioned before, volatile organic chemicals, formaldehyde, flame retardants, these PFAS uh, chemicals, we often find them higher levels inside. And that's because indoor sources like um, the, the products that we buy and use and building materials um, contain these chemicals and they can emit and shed these chemicals into the indoor air and dust. And then the chemicals can get into our bodies when we breathe in that contaminated air and come in contact with that contaminated dust. I have so many questions. I I have to ask you right now because you are you are information filled, and and lots of thoughts were running down my. Obviously, the greatest threat to all of these exposures are children, and then when we talk about some of these illnesses that are, you know, environmental or genetic, there is a there is a piece I wonder if you could share about epigenetics, that when we live in a certain place or we live in a certain way, can you share with us any piece on how that can create a shift too? I think often people will think, oh, well, you know, this is, we do this every day. We do this all the time. This is, we, we've never had a problem with this, but I think it kind of fits into that, all the things that are in the natural landscape of our lives that we brought into our homes seem normal, and a lot of them aren't. And, and I know that it impacts people immediately sometimes, sometimes not immediately. And as I had suggested, uh, epigenetically, generationally. So, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I was wondering if you could share a little bit about some of those impacts on children, the next generation as they evolve, because I, you know, I've always, I'm not a scientist, but I've always believed that children, I have two, are under construction. And, and that was one of the reasons I was interested in, in founding Less Cancer was because I didn't believe people really understood the impacts of what was outside coming in, especially for our children. Can you share anything on that? 
Yes, those are some really important points, Bill. You know, the as I mentioned, um, when we think about these diseases, there's a number of factors that we have to think about. So they're, they have really kind of complex and complicated um, origins, right? That's It's our genes, our environment, and the interactions between the genes and environment in, in many cases. So what, what we can um, think about when it comes to our environment is that there's these, these factors like pollutant and chemical exposures that we have control over. So we can reduce pollution, we can um, stop bringing harmful chemicals into our homes. And that is that can really reduce the these harmful exposures and reduce um, the risks related to environmental exposures. So, you know, we can't change our genes, at, at least not yet, but we can change our environment. And I think it's it's just so important to, to understand that. Um, we can make our environments healthier and that can really help support public health and make communities healthier, um, especially as you mentioned, children, right, whose brains and bodies are still growing and developing and they're particularly vulnerable to um, toxic exposures that can harm the, the developing brain and body like lead. And the other thing I wanted to mention in terms of the home is that uh, many toxic chemicals and pollutants do collect in indoor dust and young children crawl, they play on the floor, they put their hands in their mouths. So they come into a lot greater contact with this contaminated dust. Well, you know, you touched on something that we can't change genes, which we, we can't, but the environment seems to be able to, right? Which is why we need to be so careful with the unnecessary and preventable exposures out in the world today, of which, you know, so many we're bringing in on our home thinking it's going to solve our next convenience issue and not realize it's going to impact human health in the way that it often does. I do know that you've worked with some pesticide issues and, um, and, I remember one of the first issues that we tried to work on here, and we did with some success, was um, creating barriers between pesticides and health-affected communities like schools. And um, can you share with us, because we're, we, you know, in the news, we don't hear maybe as much about pesticides today as maybe we did 10 years ago. Can you tell us about what's going on in that space with pesticides? Sure, that's a it's a great question, and um, you know I'd say, unfortunately, there are pesticides that that we're concerned about. Some pesticides that we use in our homes and um, on our fields are hazardous and linked to diseases like cancers, developmental disorders, and and other serious um, illnesses, and. I'll mention one um, particular hazardous class of pesticides known as uh, organophosphates or OP pesticides. And these pesticides are related to nerve agents that um, were used for chemical warfare. And these OP pesticides 
poison agricultural workers every year. They're also linked to harming the developing brain. So what we see is that during pregnancy, exposures to OP pesticides are linked to uh, developmental harms to children, loss of cognitive capacity, learning and memory problems. And the people who are most at risk are agricultural workers and people who live near fields where these pesticides are used. So pesticides don't stay where they're put. They can drift away from the fields and get into people's bodies through contaminated air and drinking water in their communities. And these folks are not just exposed to one pesticide. It's, it's many pesticides that are used on the fields all around them. And I wanted to mention um, there is still an OP pesticide that's allowed for use in the home um, on, in flea collars on pets in the United States. And um, children are particularly at risk from, from that use because they kids you know, really love to play with dogs and cats, pet them. Um, they can really be exposed to that, that chemical that's, that's used on pets. Well, I know being a dog owner, dogs love looking eye to eye. And so kids are closest to them on the eye to eye thing, which is, you know, is tricky. And so many people now sleep with their pets with, you know, they are they have a long exposure to some of these, um, you know, um, pets that are on their laps or they're in their bedroom or in their spaces where um, they continue to be exposed with that. I, I want to thank you for being here today. And I appreciate all your help and your leadership on these critical issues, keeping people safe in their homes. So thanks so much, Lena. I appreciate you a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Next up is Wil Wilma Subra. And Wilma, I'm wondering if you can... Um, Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. I provide technical assistance to community groups dealing with environmental and human health issues. Community groups all over the United States and in some foreign countries. I formed Super Company in 1981, and then Louisiana Environmental Action Network formed in 1986. So I have been providing technical assistance through those two organizations. And I also served on a whole host of environmental protection agency advisory committees dealing with the issues that the communities are up against. And two of those were, for six years, I served on the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, which is really, really important right now to the new administration. And then I served for seven years and I was vice chair of NEJAC, which deals with policy and technology. Wow. You really are a pioneer in this area, actually, by the way. You have really been at the forefront of of so much hard question asking and answering and bringing to light. Um, as a scientist, can you tell us a little bit about your scientific background and what pulled you into this? Like what was the, the thing that um, really got you ignited? I'm the oldest of six girls. So I was the first one that ventured off to college. I received a master's in microbiology and chemistry 
and computer science all combined together. And those were the infancy days when the computers use punch cards. But I was always interested in science. I had very good science teachers in high school. And as a result, even while in college, community members were coming to our university and asking for help with environmental issues and issues that were causing human health impacts. So after I finished college, I went to work for a research institute for 14 years. And at that point, I decided I needed to be available more to the communities to help them reduce their exposure. I love that. And I love your leadership. And you really have been an approachable resource for people to reach out to, to to get help with. Can you share one of your first experiences around industry or regulatory things that you worked on, processes? Mostly it was oil and gas drilling and production. And Louisiana has oil and gas drilling and production in every parish or county in Louisiana. And then, of course, we had the offshore development. So frequently people were told they had to have a well in their yard. They didn't have a lease. And then they left all the waste behind and people were getting very sick. And a lot of those rigs were in agricultural land and the farmers were complaining that it degraded the soil. And so I was one out there doing sampling and identifying the chemicals of concern and the pathways of exposure. And then I worked within the agencies to get the rules and regs adopted for the oil and gas drilling and production, which is still regulated as non-hazardous oil field waste. But in the early, in the late 80s, they had a damage case to Congress, and I had given the most cases of damage case to Congress. But Congress still decided to do non-hazardous oil field waste. And after that, EPA put together a committee of industry, community members, and regulators, and we developed guidelines and went into state and reviewed their programs and gave them recommendations. I am so grateful for you. Personally, I'm grateful for you, and I'm grateful for my children that there has been people like you charging ahead and leading the way. What was really the first trigger? Did somebody tap you on the shoulder, or were you like, hey, wait a minute, get that thing out of my yard? How did this, like, what was that first action that you took? In college, there were a lot of rendering plants on the Vermilion River, which flowed through Lafayette, where the university was located. And people would come in and say they're dead cows floating down the river. And I kept remembering and reminding them that you don't drink the water from the Vermilion River, where people in New Orleans drink the water from the Mississippi River. And therefore, you don't try and protect your water source. So you need to act like it is your water source and do as much as possible to clean up that river. And we're still trying to clean up that river. Wow, absolutely. But this was, I just want to remind our listeners um, that that was at a time really when if people, people couldn't see some of these exposures. So they instantly translated it to the fact that, oh, it must not be there. So, you you know, un- until they saw a floating cow, your pitch was a pretty difficult one to sell, you know, because people were making money. People were supporting their families this way. And then there was this other piece impacting human health. And I appreciate your bravery on that a lot. Um, 
Can you share with us um, anything around like accidental releases that occurred at that time or any, any stories of um, human health impacts relative to this? A lot of the work I do is on what's called Cancer Alley, where industrial development started in the early 1900s. And again, at that time, there was little to no regulations and no control of the emissions. And over the years, particularly in the 60s, a huge number of industrial facilities started moving in and constructing on plantations. And when you'd ask the Department of Environmental Quality, what was that coming out of the stack? They'd say, oh, it's just steam. And so I would go in and look at the permit applications and help the community understand these are the chemicals that are being released out of the stack. These are the chemicals that are being released from different portions of the facility. And these are the health impacts, the chronic health impacts and the acute health impacts. And then they'd start saying, oh, well, I have that acute impact. I have that acute impact. And then they really wanted to work to get those emissions reduced so it didn't have such a negative impact on their health. And it could be a small facility, not along the Mississippi River, that even it could be a sewer plant. And the people would come and say, we have a problem. Can you help us understand what's going on? When you first started with Cancer Alley and some of these, you know, ex, you know, explaining the chemicals, what year was that? It started in the 70s that community members were questioning what they were being exposed to. I can't really even imagine it. Then, because I know in the 2000s, people had such a hard time understanding so much of this stuff. So you really started from ground zero in making, connecting the dots, showing people how this impacted human health and the environment, that it was more than just even a floating cow, which is so horrendous, floating down the river. But really, you were able to talk about some of the health effects. What were some of the pressing health effects there? Was it cancer? At first, the issue was respiratory, skin rashes, asthma attacks, the acute impacts. And they say, you know, when the weather sits down in Louisiana, when the weather sits down, we have fog. Like this morning, it was totally fog. And all those emissions are held close to the ground. And that's when they would get the asthma attacks and the respiratory impacts. And then they'd start saying, well, you know, this is how many people in our community have cancer. Let's look at the different kind of cancers. And then I was able to correlate the types of cancers to the types of chemicals that were associated with those cancers, and then associate that with the emissions from the different facilities in their area. Amazing, amazing. Um, tell me, Wilma, was, were there um, issues going on in schools at that time? Were they seeing trends with um, school health? You know, now, we have, you know, X amount of kids out of school because of asthma. What did it look like at that time? And what was the explanation? So it looked really bad, particularly on bad days. And the, the kids would bring their nebulizer to school. And in some schools, they had to check it in at the office. And then when they needed it, they had to go to the office 
and they gave them their nebulizer. But then the school started being reluctant to say how many students were on nebulizers. Mm-hmm. And so we were having a difficult time of saying 20% of the kids are having respiratory problems. And sometimes it happens when they're in school. And oh, by the way, there was a sugarcane farmer spraying his field and the emissions from the sprays came in. Or, oh, there was a flare going at an industrial facility down the road releasing lots of smoke. And the kids were all rushed into the office to get their nebulizers. So then you started doing a cause and effect. And even though a lot of the people worked for the industrial facility, the mothers were always protective of their children. And they wanted reductions to occur so their children weren't so sick. And in my area, we have sugarcane farmers and they burn the fields. And the mothers here, even though they're involved in the industry, say they want the farmers to pay for their medical bills, their medicine bills, and their children's health. Mm. It's always back to cause and effect. I could sit here and listen to you all day. I'm not kidding. You are an amazing person. I'm certainly grateful for all your contributions. And I really just want to thank you for being here today and and making National Cancer Prevention Day and Workshop such a priority. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So next up, we're going to talk to Sherry. Sherry, hi. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Could you share with our listeners today who you are, where you work? Tell us about yourself. Um, Obviously, I'm Sherry White-Williamson. I currently serve as the Environmental Justice Policy Director at the North Carolina Conservation Network, which is an organization of about 70 nonprofits across North Carolina. Um, In that role, I'm responsible for making sure that we consider environmental justice in all of the work that we're doing there. Um, I am also the co-founder of a nonprofit organization here in Sampson County, Um, to work with citizens on issues of CAFOs and wood pellets and landfills and all of the things that we have here in the county. Uh, Prior to joining Conservation Network, I retired from EPA from the Office of Environmental Justice and was designated federal officer to the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, as well as managing the interagency working group on environmental justice. Wow. Wow. We are grateful for you. I... um Wanted to ask you, what groups are considered environmental justice communities? That's always an interesting discussion because the definition of environmental justice says low-income communities and communities of color. Mm -hmm. Um, And the conversation I've tried to have with many people is the fact that low-income communities and communities of color are not necessarily the same thing. Um, And so when we talk about low-income communities, we are not only talking about communities of color, but we're also talking about low-income communities. Think of Appalachia and some of the other places across the United States that I visited that are not necessarily minority, but are impacted because of the lack of power um, that they have or um, the access to decision makers. Um, So communities of color, yes. And when we talk about communities of color, Um, Income doesn't necessarily have anything to do with it because there was the first report in 1987, Toxic Waste and Race, um, that looked at the correlation between the placement of polluting facilities and race and found that even if you looked at two communities 
one minority, one white with the same level of income. And there was a decision that had to be made about where to place that toxic material. It was going to go into that community of color. Um, so when we talk about the groups, we have to be very clear about what we're talking about because income is not necessarily determinative. Race is definitely the most determinative, but there are communities across the spectrum, all cultures, all races that are impacted. And the commonality there is their uh, access to decision makers and to sort of the levers of power. Access all around. You know, I always think just in my undereducated way that um, so many of these areas where there are disparities of whatever the variety is and their vulnerability to outside toxins is, you know, it's really, it really is a, a variable. And we do see things, we do see, um, you know, areas where people are impacted where they, they might have more wealth or they might not be people of color, but they typically have more access to education, to healthcare, to being better connected so they can pick up the phone to talk to their legislator. And, you know, I've always said that literacy was one of the best, you know, cancer prevention tools there is. And when we see, you know, poor education and, and, and lack of resources, lack of access, we see more cancer. And of course, that's our interest. And that's, you know, my interest as, as well. And, and so I'm super grateful for your work because there has to be a better understanding. We have to level that, that playing field. And you're absolutely right. We, we saw that. I didn't say I also worked for the American Cancer Society back in the day when we were trying to um, convince folks that they should stop smoking so much. And coming from a rural area, being able to have that conversation with tobacco growers as I grew up working in tobacco mm -hmm. um, made a lot of difference in terms of understanding where they were and helping to give them get them access to um, elected officials. And once we were able to make those connections, it was amazing how the power of public health and impacted communities going together um, to talk with with decision makers um, could make such a difference in the outcome. And where that came from, you know, when we think in my lifetime, um, Santa Claus used to sell cigarettes and doctors yeah. used to sell cigarettes. And, I, you know, I remember my mom who passed away from a small cell carcinoma at a fairly young age um, smoked Kent cigarettes, which, if you know that story, was supposedly the safest cigarette because of their filter tips, which mm -hmm. turned out to be some chrysalis asbestos situation. And it was, you know, my mom thought she was doing, and, and at that time she was smoking, doctors used to say, you know, why don't you try to relax and, and have a cigarette? Mm -hmm. And and at that time, Kent was sponsoring the American um, Medical Association meetings. I mean, mm -hmm. really, really interesting stuff. So the pushback on that was very, very hard. And I appreciate your help in that for sure. And men menthol cigarettes, if you think about it, were found in African-American communities because the research showed that they were more addictive um, to people of color with menthol. So there, there's been a lot of research in a lot of different ways that 
that we can look at as environmental justice issues, um, even today, you know. Hey, kid, kids, I always thought uh, menthol cigarettes were the first vapes, you know, because yeah. so many kids smoke menthol cigarettes. I used to be a smoker. The founder of Less Cancer used to be a so smoker. Right? There was a time I used to think ashtrays should be on stationary bicycles. My whole house smoked, and it was, and it was a cultural thing. But for kids, young people, menthol cigarettes... Um, were an easy transition from bubblegum to menthol because there was a flavor, there was a whole coolness factor and um, an acceptance thing. So it was really a hard thing to push back on. We still lose like 480,000 people a year to smoking from my understanding. And, um, you know, those numbers may be different. I'm just a layman. So anyway, I wanted to um, ask you a little bit about some of, you know, you, you touched on waste disposal, and I just wanted to understand that a little better, if you okay. could. I'm, I'm at ground zero for, for waste disposal, not just animal waste. Um, the county that I'm in is the second largest hog producing county in the country. Um, and the way that the waste, the hog waste is stored is in open pits. We call them lagoons. They are larger than the size of a football field. Um, and that waste from the animals is washed out of the houses into these pits where they stay for a short period of time. And then the waste is sprayed on adjoining fields. So as a result of, of that spray field, lagoon and spray field system, predominantly in communities of color and low-income communities, we see a lot of water contamination as a result because the, the feces and the urine obviously contains many of the chemicals that are fed to the hogs, the antibiotics, the hormones, the kinds of things that are fed to make them grow fast and keep them, keep them uh, well while they're, they're growing. Um, and so we see algal blooms um, in, at, in times of year when you would not expect to see them. Folks are finding fishing fish with sores on them as a result of these chemicals that are soaking into the ground, then into the water system. And most of the folks around the hog farms um, and poultry farms, and I'll talk about those just briefly too, um, are mostly on well water. So they are not on public water systems. And so we see aquifers that are being contaminated and there is no relief for them. If, if the contamination occurs, there's no mechanism within the state to fix it. Um, there is no monitoring um, of the water in the air um, in those areas. Uh, spills of those lagoons are supposed to be self-reported by the ag industry. Um, so there are a lot of, of loopholes uh, that allow this to happen. Uh, the poultry industry, my county is number two in poultry production in the state, and the state is number two in the country in turkey production. Well, turkeys, not just poultry, turkeys. Um, and uh, poultry in North Carolina is not regulated um, by the Department of Environmental Quality. And so there is a problem now with poultry litter um, which is piled up and you can only apply so much to the fields as a means of fertilizer. Um, and if it's over applied, then we have some situations here where we found water testing we've done with high levels of arsenic because arsenic is used um, in chicken feed. Um, so there are many issues. We have the largest landfill in the state, which is about 12, about 1400 acres. Um, and trash, we've determined now, is coming from as far away as probably New York because barges are being unloaded from the port at Wilmington and trash being brought in here. 
Um, so there are multiple um, ways that the community uh, is being affected by all of the contamination here. And there's very little regulation and uh, very little monitoring or testing uh, of, of what we have coming into the community. And obviously we're seeing the impacts. There was um, an air study done uh, back in May, I believe the report was reported out in the Washington Post that clearly um, connected deaths to exposures on farms. Um, the adjoining county to me, I believe the count was about 70 deaths. In this county, it was about 90 deaths that could be directly connected to exposures to exposures to air toxins um, by farm workers and other folks working on farms here. So there are a number of issues we continue to be concerned about. We also have wood pellet manufacturing here. So we're seeing deforestation here for the benefit of the UK because none of that uh, none of that those pellets are being burned here um, in the county or in the state. And as you all know, we have lots of floods. And so if you're cutting the timber down to produce pellets, then you're creating more problems when we have these storms with flooding and dead animals um, as a result of the I flooding. I cannot believe everything you've got going on in the poor state of North Carolina, for God's sake. Really, I mean, it's really unbelievable how much you have happening there. Well, and we would we would welcome to toxic tours so that, that we can have people really see what's going on here. We did have um, um, a visit from some folks um, from the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council about a month and a half ago, and we were able to give them a flyover so they could see um, from the sky exactly what's happening on the ground here. And everybody was amazed as they flew over the landfill from 2,000 feet up. They said they could smell the odor um, emanating from the landfill. And there are folks who live within 500 feet of the entrance to the landfill. So you can wow. imagine what they are, are, are dealing with on a daily basis. Terrible. It's really, really shocking. You know, it really is. It's really horrible. And I just, I, I wish I had a, a solution. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or any kind of scientist to see the correlation, the understanding of spraying hormones on, you know, on crops. And what do you, you know, it makes me think about like what the drift looks like for those kids in school or what is all that about? Well, some of the facilities are very close to schools, are built very close to schools. Um, if the wind is blowing the right way in many situations, you can, because it is urine and feces, you can feel the, you know, the mist. Um, so you can actually feel that material sometimes. And um, we are seeing problems as a result of the location of many of the residents to these facilities. We um, recently found some homes that had high levels of, of total coliform. Um, and it's up to the resident to determine the source um, rather than um, it being done by a state agency. Wow. Well, I, you know, we are going to, for everybody on this panel today, we are going to let people know how to find you and how to help and pitch in and be part of it. Um, I'm so delighted and grateful that you were here today. I've learned so much from all of you, but I really appreciate you, Sherry, being here. Thanks so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much. Um, our, our next person up is Ami Zoda. 
Can you share with our listeners um, a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm an associate professor of environmental and occupational health at George Washington University Milken School of Public Health. I'm located in our nation's capital here in Washington, D.C., I guess at the heart of the action. Um, And broadly, my work seeks to advance uh, environmental justice and health equity. And I do that in a couple of ways. So I'm a research scientist. I try to understand what are the major pathways by which uh, we're all exposed to these toxic chemicals. Uh, I particularly focus on uh, understanding exposures among women and children and those from systemically marginalized communities. Um, And I'm I'm very conscious about the language I use. Often we say uh, vulnerable populations or communities of color, low income populations. We really have to, or underrepresented populations, but you know, they're they're vulnerable because they have been marginalized uh, both historically and in present day um, uh, because of power differentials and structural inequalities. So really kind of trying to create new frameworks for how we think about these issues, how we study them, uh, really trying to put an emphasis on kind of upstream modifiable factors uh, rather than always putting the blame on the individual. Um, I kind of follow this through line to understand the health effects, uh, particularly on women of color. Um, so, um, you know, I focus a lot on pregnancy because we know that kind of when the fetus is gestating during fetal development is a really vulnerable period that can affect trajectories across the life course. But I've, I also focus on women's health uh, because often they are ignored. Um, And we know that pregnancy is a sensitive period of uh, exposure, not only for the developing fetus, but actually for women. And what happens during pregnancy can affect their health for decades uh, further further onward. Um, And uh, I'm really focused on women of color because I'm also thinking about intersectionality and how uh, racism and sexism may jointly contribute to Uh, elevated environmental exposures, as well as health effects. Uh, But my work doesn't just uh, end when I publish a paper. I work with uh, groups, whether it's NRDC or grassroots environmental justice organizations like WEAC, to move the science forward into decision-making because, right, we want to have an impact with the work we do. Um, I also train students. I'm an educator and um, I am. I've, I do a lot of work in training uh, underrepresented students and those from uh, systemically marginalized groups. And then the last pillar is actually communication. Uh, just like we're all here, you can be doing great work, but if nobody knows about it, it's harder for it to have an impact. Um, and so my journey with this is I've. Uh, done a lot of work in kind of communicating my own research and that of others with the media, uh, because everyone reads the Washington Post and the New York Times or, you know, looks on, you know, uses social media. So it's, these are great tools to kind of get the word out. And more recently, I'm training the younger generation on um, science communication Um, So that we can kind of cultivate a new cadre of thought leaders in environmental and climate justice that are uh, well grounded in not only kind of the technical matters, but also 
community engagement and uh, communication. Awesome. We need great storytellers to teach people. And I appreciate what you're doing. I, I have a question for you because you're in a university setting and you work with chemicals and you understand how the environment works and the, the good and the bad. Um, you know, I, I, you mentioned something that made me think of phthalates and I'm not exactly sure what your background is, but just because, you know, I, I was in a dorm not too long ago walking through it and all I could smell was, I don't even know what the smell is. It comes out of a can. It was so horrible. And I was like, since you're with the university, do you know what that is? And are there phthalates in that? That's what I was thinking. You know, I yeah. think to cover weed or something, but I was just like, what is going on in here? It was, it was real. I had to get out. My eyes were running. It was really, it smelled like a high test baby powder. I don't even know what it was. So I do a lot of work on phthalates um, with that, uh, you know, the P being silent at the, at the top of the, you know, the, the head of the word. Um, and um, it could have been phthalates because phthalates are often found in fragrances um, as solvents. But unfortunately, uh, if it isn't a fragrance, you won't see it labeled um, on the back of a bottle. Uh, so personal care products, beauty products are one source of phthalates. They're found in home materials like the type that... Uh, Vina was speaking about, so they can be in your homes. Uh, they can also be in our food supply. Um, and because we use a lot of plastics in our food systems, unfortunately, and uh, none of these chemicals, you know, stay put in the products that they're using. They migrate out into our food, into our bodies, our dust. And, um, and, you know, they, you know, they're associated with all kinds of health effects, whether it's the feminization of baby boys, uh, neurodevelopmental problems in our, in our children, um, and even uh, cancer down the road. Can I just stop you for one second when we talk about the feminization of baby boys for the, for the whole audience? Can you explain some of the impacts of phthalates, what the feminization of baby boys really is and how that impacts them at birth or, you know, so can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So uh, phthalates are, you know, hormone hijacking chemicals. Uh, some have, you know, some refer to them as endocrine disrupting chemicals. So at really low levels, you know, this doesn't, these, these, these exposures don't have to be at really egregious levels, although some communities like workers are exposed to those really high levels. Uh, but even at really low levels, they can um, they can hijack how our hormones behave. And uh, some of the phthalates that are particularly found in plastics, uh, PVC plastics, um, can actually block the behavior and the activity and the signaling of testosterone. Um, so essentially, um, you know, our populations may not be getting enough testosterone at different periods of development. And um, in, in baby boys, they have found uh, that uh, phthalates was uh, associated with a shorter anogenital distance, which is a marker of feminization. And shorter anogenital distance is also related to, you know, lower sperm concentrations, uh, lower sperm uh, motility, so lower sperm function. Um, and uh, 
These same phthalates can also um, interfere with uh, reproduction in women. So it can make it harder to get pregnant or have a successful birth from your pregnancy. So reproduction all around is a, you know, kind of a key process that's really impacted by uh, these chemicals that can hijack our hormones. You know, sometimes cancer seems so distant that it isn't really a reality, but when they're having children and they really understand some of the things that they're using has to do with the construction of their child how their child is put together. I think that knowing that some of those impacts are critical. So, you know, I believe that the real access comes in educating everybody despite their access. So it is, you're right about choices because there's lots of things that go on in communities and neighborhoods or where we live. We listen to Sherry. I mean, those people have so limited Um, Right. But even when you talk about, let's say, like beauty products, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think some of the same uh, structural forces that are leading to CAFOs in Sherry's neighborhood is also at play because we know that women of color, like Black and Latina women, have higher exposures to beauty product related chemicals in their bodies like phthalates and they they use more toxic products. Well, why are they using more toxic products? I mean, sure, we could think about this as an individual choice, but really it's because of structural racism, right? Because, um, you know, societal norms impact who we find beautiful, what we find beautiful. And this isn't just a U.S. phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon, right? And globally, kind of at the top of this beauty hierarchy is whiteness and white femininity. And so kind of the closer you are to that norm, the more social and economic benefits you're afforded. And women of color are inherently outside of that norm. And so often, you know, because of their workplaces or because of their school you know, norms and the rules in these places, and also because of peer pressure, they're often using more toxic products to straighten their hair, to lighten their skin, to smell a certain way. And cheaper. They're cheaper chemicals. You know, the, there it's a, it's a cost thing as well, where chemicals are often added or not because it's a cheaper path to go. And so the more affordable, it, you know, it, it, Right. But actually, and this, I think somebody was talking about this too, you know, with some of these products, they're used across the income spectrum because actually the pressures are often greater for women working in professional settings, women of color working in professional settings. So there's a part of this that's related to income, but structural racism operates independent of income, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think what's powerful about the conversation we're having here is a lot of people are working on similar issues, but in different contexts. And I think when it comes to like our food supply or our beauty landscape, you know, we often kind of think about it at like individual choices, but these same forces are still operating and playing out. And that's also why we need kind of like policy level interventions. And we need kind of more societal level interventions to balance out kind of this notion that individual choice alone will kind of can get us out of this. There, you know, often, because I, I, I'll speak anywhere, 7-Eleven, anywhere anybody asks me, I show up. But often people ask me, how can we um, 
make change? What can we do to get informed? What can, you know, I mean, they, they have all these complex questions. Many of I don't know the answers for, but I do know that if we lead with our conscience, if we, if we wouldn't want it in our lives, why would we want it in anybody's lives? And if we understood um, that we, there are options, not necessarily choices, but there are options and we can root for those healthier options, that's great if people have the information. But I also understand that um, they don't. And for many reasons, for lots and lots of reasons beyond, you know, it could be literacy, it could be um, homelessness, it could be a- any of those things where, uh, you know, any option is cut down. And so it becomes a very complex issue, as you're suggesting. So with with what we're talking about now, are there things that we can do, somebody like me, anybody in the audience can do to help? make it better. What can we do on that? Have conversations, right? Mm-hmm. You can you can educate each other, right? I mean, we have to organize to change uh-huh. policy, yeah. you know, nationally and at the state level and we all, you know, and in this in this case, we can also try to put pressure on the private sector to take these issues seriously you know, and and realize that um, the more that people want cleaner and safer options, the more the private sector will respond. Um, but there, we also need a lot of transparency. Like there's a whole clean beauty industry that's popped up. Uh, and I, I think it's because of consumer demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is also kind of in the women of color kind of beauty market. But there, right now, there's no transparency or accountability. So anybody can kind of use these labels. Um, and it, so there's a lot of greenwashing happening, right. too. I just have, you know, you, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. You're making my head explode with ideas because I'm just like thinking about so much now and I appreciate that. But I did, we talk about policy and one thing that people always ask me is, how is what you're doing in public health different than the treatment or cure of cancer? How is that different? And often I suggest that policy is just a different tool for public health, that policy and education is how we prevent illness. Treatment and and cures are great, and we love them and honor them, and I've wanted them for a lot of people in my life, but um, policy is not about really controlling anything. It's about addressing needs that need to be met. And and people don't understand that when they say, it's my choice to smoke here in public, or it's my choice to do this. There's so many at risk when people make those individual choices. And so policy, I just want to clear this up for the every everyday guy here, is really a critical health prevention tool. And it's right up there with education. So it looks different than Band-Aids or aspirin. But when we talk about policy, it's not just about enforcing rules. It's about protecting human health. And I just wanted our audience to really understand that. And um, I I think that's a I mean, I think that's a really, really good point. And I'm glad that you're ending there, because I think the difference between public health and medicine is one, the emphasis on the collective versus the individual, right? Medicine is about treating individuals. Public health is about the public, right? And mm-hmm. especially protecting those most vulnerable. And then the other the other difference is the point of intervention. 
So public health seeks to go upstream, right? Their focus is on prevention, whereas medicine is like, right, what you what you use once you're already sick, right? right. And so I think those are kind of two key two two key differences. So I mean, I think the thing about public health is is if you're doing a good job, nobody knows, right? Because it's almost like the problems don't in, don't right. ever show up. So it's a little bit of a thankless job, but. Um, so, um, but I do think public health is an important, I mean, policy is an important public health tool. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I I want to thank you for being here today because you, all of you have made me think about so many things today and I appreciate that. Um, and also apologize for my ignorance on, on some of this. Um, but I really appreciate you guys being here and Ami, thank you so much. Um, for everything and all your good work. Emily Donovan, thanks so much for being here. Can you tell us and share with our audience a little bit today about what you do, what you're doing and fill us in? Yeah, um, so I live in Southeastern North Carolina in the Wilmington, North Carolina area. And um, I actually, you know, my paid job is I work at a church, um, but I woke up four and a half years ago to headline news that we had high levels of these toxic chemicals in our drinking water. And so I formed a grassroots coalition called Clean Cape Fear. And we've spent the last four years um, pushing back on Comores and DuPont for releasing these chemicals into our drinking water. And um, we focus a lot on holding um, elected leaders and other stakeholders accountable. We are grateful for your work. It's so needed. For those that may not know, can you tell us a little bit about PFAS, where they might see it in their house, what it might look like? How do they know? Yeah, so, um, you know, you know, I'm not a, a, a biomedical chemical major, but I took a crash course uh, when I found out that I was, you know, drinking it and giving it to my kids. Um, so PFAS, uh, PFAS, they're a class of chemicals that represent thousands of compounds and they're all unregulated. So they're not going to show up in your drinking water utility report. Um, and they're they're not going to be on labels unless you live in a state that's proactively putting them on, um, on product labeling. But the technical name for PFAS is per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, which is a mouthful. And so what I like to, um, we, you know, we tend to call them then PFAS as PFAS. And I like to refer to them as permanently freakish altering stuff. Permanent because they live forever. These do not degrade. Um, freakish because they they are not naturally occurring anywhere. The the carbon fluorine bond that makes them so durable and and used in so many different products and arenas um, is is a forced human made uh, chemistry, and it takes an incredible amount of energy to break that bond, and that is why they persist and live forever altering because they alter us at a cellular level. And I know we've heard about um, phthalates and a, and a whole bunch of other endocrine disrupting chemicals, but that's essentially what these are too, is um, altering us at the cellular level at trace amounts. So even exposures at very, very low levels are showing some high toxic effects and stuff because they are literally in everything from um, Teflon coated nonstick pans to uh, raincoats and waterproof um, camping gear, stain resistant carpets. Um, it's been found in dental floss, in makeup, 
in pesticides. It has been found everywhere scientists have looked for it. They have discovered PFAS, um, major contamination in military, firefighting, foam, and in the fire industry. And you're going to hear about that in a little bit from a good friend, Tony. Um, now, how is this related to Wilmington, North Carolina? Like I said a couple of minutes ago, they showed up in our drinking water because there is a major chemical company, DuPont, um, which now they spun off into Comores, uh, is located about 80 miles upstream of Wilmington in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And that is where they make this chemistry. And they have been relieved. They've been making it in a very irresponsible manner uh, for decades, releasing it into the air where it's contaminated thousands of private well owners water and then releasing it into the Cape Fear River, which is a major drinking water supply for 1.5 million North Carolinians. 350,000 of them live downstream of Comores, and we rely on the Cape Fear River as our primary source of drinking water. And these chemicals are so um, so slippery and sticky that it's hard for conventional uh, municipal water supplies to filter them out. And that's what was happening in our area. Um, they're showing up in our finished tap water. Yikes, right? I'm so glad you're working on these issues. Um, we have to move along on here, but I just want to ask you if there's one thing that people can be doing to support you, to support the situation, what would that be? Well, that's a, <laughs> sorry, that was a curveball question. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that one. But I want to make sure that people follow up with everybody here. I really do. Yeah. I want people to be able to support and help you guys as they feel like they can. Yeah, you know, you... You can definitely follow our work on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, at Clean Cape Fear. Mm -hmm. We have a website that gets updated periodically at cleancapefear.org. Um, a lot of the work that we do is partnering with uh, great allies and organizations like NRDC to help uh, affect change and policymakers. And probably some of the biggest things that we can do if we're talking to the healthcare community is, um, is please research, research this chemistry. Um, mm -hmm. We just recently worked with the National Academies of Sciences to they're doing mm -hmm. a, a draft guidance on, on PFAS and, and, populating the body of work on health effects. And one of the biggest problems that we're seeing in our community is that medical providers and healthcare professionals are not able to really meet our needs. We know we've been exposed and we know there's high exposures, but it's difficult to get uh, proactive care because there's just not enough information on that. Um, and that's because the information hasn't been correlated through the National Academies of Science or into any clinical guidance. Um, but the information is out there in piecemeal studies, um, in scientific journals. And so I would just really encourage healthcare professionals to start researching this chemistry and its health effects, especially if you are providing care in communities with known contamination. Listen, we're going to be following you. I want everybody to be following everybody on here and following your work and supporting you in any way that they can. I sure appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Okay, next up is Tony Spaniola um, from Michigan, my home state, and we are so glad that you're here today. Tony, can you please share with us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing? Yeah, Bill, for sure. Um, I'm, a, I'm a commercial lawyer in the suburban Detroit area, mm -hmm. uh, and my family owns a home. Bill, you'll know the term up north. 
yeah. uh, in Michigan uh, on a lake in a little town called Oscoda, uh, which sits in the beautiful Huron Natural National Forest and right near uh, Lake Huron. Um, and uh, as a result of that, um, I'm an impacted citizen um, because we're near the former Wordsmith Air Force Base, uh, which was the first military base in the world at which PFAS contamination was reported. And among other things, I got involved because I found out we can't drink our water at my residential well at our home uh, in Oscoda. And um, I bring a, a kind of an unusual background to this because I'm a former news reporter uh, in addition to my legal work. Um, and I also have a political and policy background um, dating back to my father served in the Michigan legislature mm -hmm. at a time in the 1970s and 80s. Bill, you may remember the PBB contamination crisis. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. Yeah. That we had here in Michigan. And my father uh, spearheaded the legislation that dealt with that. And it was such a, an, an amazing thing that went on. Uh, I took a year off from school and uh, met the, the farmers who were impacted, met the scientists, spent a day at Irving Selikoff's laboratory, uh, fought through the political battles with my father. It was one of the biggest political fights I think I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and then uh, went on to law school and um, uh, studied some more about cancer and public policy. And went to my dad and said, hey, you know, we have this problem with PBB in our state. We ought to set up a cancer registry. Um, and so he introduced legislation, which was which became law in 1984. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, I thought my work was done until 2016, when uh, uh, Flint, in the midst of the Flint water crisis, um, saw a headline in a paper, much like Emily, that said there's this lake in northern Michigan that could be the next Flint. And there was a picture of our lake. So um, I became involved. And reached out to my neighbors, reached out to my friends, reached out to political allies. And uh, we, we formed a group, uh, much like Emily's in Oscoda, called Need Our Water, which is a community action organization there. And then we've networked. Um, we formed a, the Great Lakes PFAS Action Network to network with um, uh, NGOs uh, around the region uh, and other communities around the region. We think that building bridges to other communities so that we can collectively lift up our voices politically is a huge thing. So I co-founded that. I'm co-chair of that and also serve with Emily on the leadership team of the National PFAS Contamination Coalition. It's amazing. I do want to mention to everybody on here that um, both Fred Upton and Debbie Dingell are the sponsors of um, the United States um, Bipartisan Cancer Prevention Caucus, the Congressional Caucus. And uh, this workshop and have have been very supportive of our efforts and are doing work in the um, Great Lakes right now to protect those Great Lakes. So we're grateful um, for that. Um, because time is not on our side now, Tony, can you tell us basically some of the challenges that are going on in Oscoda? Tell me, tell me what's going on. There. Sure. How is this impacting you? Sure. So. Um, in Oscoda, we're operating under five separate public health warnings that have been issued because of the PFAS contamination. Uh, PFAS chemicals were used in the firefighting foam at the base uh, and the Osabo River, nine miles of the Osabo River have been contaminated. Our lake has been contaminated and it flows directly into Lake Huron. So we're dealing with uh, health, health advisories for drinking water from residential wells. Uh, do not eat the fish uh, in nine miles of the river, some of the most highly contaminated fish in the world. Uh, can't eat the venison from that area, can't eat any small game or other wildlife. Uh, and we have also 
uh, surface water foam. It's sort of like the, the firefighting foam that regenerates. And it looks sometimes very innocent. Other times it looks pretty bad. But uh, as a result of our work in Oscoda, the state has now issued a statewide advisory. If you see white foam, uh, you shouldn't touch it. And it's particularly dangerous for young children. A study that was done on our lake found uh, there's a hazard quotient. I'm not a scientist. If you're in excess of one, it's really bad. For little kids, it's like 38. And so it's very, very dangerous even to touch. So we're dealing with multiple exposure pathways and trying, first of all, to get the Air Force to contain and clean it up. Fighting the Department of Defense, as you might imagine, is a massive, massive battle. But we're also dealing with the fact that we have people who have ingested the fish for many, many, many years, for decades. We have veterans who served on that base who drank incredibly high levels of PFAS contaminated drinking water. And they're all just out there. Uh, we have people who, who in a, we have a very poor community and we have people who can't afford not to eat the fish from the river. We have all these exposures and all these problems with cancers that are popping up in the, in the community but nobody is bringing a public health approach to it to try to find them, to try to help them, to try to figure out what the risks and the problems are in the community. And so it's a real battle that we're fighting really on the front lines every day. I, I think I read something. There was a, a fish warning. Was I in your like it was in Michigan for something like smelt? It was like a teeny fish. They're like, yeah, I don't need the smelt. I don't know. Was that in Lake Superior maybe? Yes, it was in Lake Superior and it was initially... I think issued by the state of Wisconsin or Minnesota, and then Michigan jumped in as well. But yeah, that's exactly right. And we have- Amazing. You know, and smelt are like, you know, right. it's hard to imagine. Yeah. And Bill, there are similar do not eat advisories. If you're familiar with the Huron River, which provides drinking water for the city oh, of yeah. Ann Arbor. Um, yeah. It's, it's a huge problem across the Great Lakes region. It is huge. And I love Michigan. I love the people of Michigan. We- um, work on many issues there as well as in a lot of other places. And um, I feel heartbroken about it because it's our largest freshwater resource in the world. And I'm, I'm hoping we can turn it around along with so many of these other issues. I want to thank you, Tony, for being here. And I want to thank everybody for being here. I'm sorry this went longer than I intended, but each of you are so interesting with so many great stories and I'm sorry if I traveled down a, a different lane for a moment or two, but I really enjoyed meeting you all and, and really appreciate you being here today and being part of this. Thanks so much.